This is Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Lee Rayburn and for Rob Ferret. Tonight at 6 on 1A Plus with Jen White, are we entering a new era of government transparency around UFOs? NASA is enlisting the public's help in their research around unknown objects in our skies. UFOs tonight at 6 on 1A+. Now, major media companies have gone through more rounds of layoffs in recent months, while smaller local news operations have struggled just to stay afloat. It's creating a challenging media environment that leads to less coverage and lower quality information for communities. It has journalists and advocates concerned about the future, so a group of them are teaming up to do something about it. The recently relaunched Rebuild Local News Coalition aims to develop new funding sources and push for policies to support independent, objective journalism to address the issues facing the industry today. Anna Brugman is the director of public policy for the Rebuild Local News Coalition, and I talked with her earlier this year. So for starters, who's all in this coalition? Um, So our coalition has uh, nonprofit newsrooms represented by uh, Institute for Nonprofit News, um, commercial digital only sites, um, local independent online news publishers, weeklies, um, some dailies, rural weekly uh, papers through a national uh, newspaper association. It's a really broad coalition. There's um, Spanish speaking publications and historic black newspapers. Um, Overall, there's 20 plus organizations that rebuild local news. represents. Uh, And the idea is that we all work in concert together to advocate for public policies to support the future of the local press. So uh, what happened to the local press? Where did it all go? How did it lose its funding? (laughs) Um, Well, that's uh, a long story, and it would uh, (laughs) honestly depend on where you began. I don't think we can depend, uh, start with the Industrial Revolution, but I'll start... (laughs) I'll start in, uh, we'll put in the 1990s, I guess. Um, So the internet was obviously a huge disruptor um, to local news. And again, there's many great journalism historians that uh, have much more sweeping local news histories than this one. But the internet was a massive disruptor to the business model of local news. It used to be that you would put your classified ads or advertisements into a local newspaper. um, And that became um, a platform um, for local businesses and even um, larger businesses to advertise to consumers. But um, it's not been that way for many, many decades. And that led to a a slow and then very fast decline of local journalism. Um, 2008, the recession was very hard on many local newspapers. Um, That's not to say that there is isn't innovation in the local news um, sector. I don't want to paint the the whole picture. It's very bleak. There's tons of innovation happening. Um, Something like 30% of nonprofit newsrooms didn't exist five years ago. Um, There's business model innovation happening at local newspapers and uh, commercial digital only sites. But overall, we have almost 60% fewer local journalists than we used to. Um, And that's really because of uh, a stirrup of the business model and also changes in reader habits. Um, uh, So again, I won't start at the Industrial Revolution. But (laughs) But you could. Uh, (laughs) I could, but I won't. (laughs) Thank Um, you, Anna. You're so welcome. One of the news stories that I've seen recently is about the Department of Justice's antitrust case against Mm -hmm. Google, saying that they've got a corner on the market of online advertising. Is that part of the problem for local journalism? It is part of the problem for 
local journalism um, platforms and uh, digital ad monopolies are part of the problem. But I, again, I think it's it's a piece of the problem, not all of the problem. Anytime you introduce new technology into um, into journalism, there's a, there's a huge shift. There's a transition. This happened when we introduced television. Um, newspapers actually started doing more analysis when television was introduced because they could not, they were no longer the source for quick information. Um, when radio <laughs> entered uh, entered the the journalism market, there was a huge stirrup. There's always um, disruption anytime you introduce a new technology, and so to some extent that was to be expected. Um, the way that Google and Facebook have uh, colluded um, to corner the market on digital advertising is a problem, not just for local news outlets, um, but for small businesses generally. Um, so that is, again, a piece of the problem, but I wouldn't say uh, pin all of the uh, pin all of the issue on that uh, digital ad monopoly. Anna Brugman, our guest, Director of Public Policy for the Rebuild Local News Coalition. And, and so what are some of these issues that this coalition is looking to take on? Of course. Um, and so we're looking at um, public policies that incentivize the hiring of journalists. And so the policy that we've been uh, attending to the most closely in the last few years is something called the payroll tax credit, which sounds like the least exciting piece of public policy <laughs> I could possibly imagine. But it is a very exciting piece of public policy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, what it does is it provides a refundable tax credit to local news outlets Um that is calculated based on how much you pay your local journalist. Um, and so this money goes to the news outlets. It doesn't go to the local journalist. And there is a cap on how uh, much local news outlets can get on these tax credits. Um, but uh, it was singled out and put into Build Back Better. Obviously, Build Back Better didn't pass. Uh, it was also included in the end-of-year omnibus um, in 2022. Um, it got cut at the last minute, but we've been working very closely with this policy at the federal level. Um, and then there are a series of other ones that we've been looking at at the state and local level, um, refundable tax credits for small businesses to advertise in local media. And when I say local media and local news outlets, I'm not just talking about newspapers. I've mentioned uh, nonprofits. Public radio is a great <laughs> example of uh, local local journalism. That Thank this you. would benefit. You're so welcome. Um, Commercial, digital onlys. Um, lo I use local news outlets very broadly, um, but the refundable uh, tax credit to small businesses would incentivize small businesses to take out advertising in local news outlets. Uh, there's another one for subscribers. Um, we're looking at uh, municipal advertising allocation. So every government city, state, federal, um, has an advertising budget for many of its uh, many of its uh, <laughs> projects like the Department of Health or sure. <laughs> uh, or your city's recreational department. There's an advertising budget. Um, and much of that advertising budget, especially at, uh, at the higher in government you go, doesn't go to local journalism. And so New York City um, tried a program where a certain proportion of some agencies' budgets had to be allocated to community newsrooms. Um, Chicago just passed it as well. Um, so we're, we're also looking at scaling those uh, sorts of programs. Um, those are the ones that have been introduced so far. We're also really interested in something called replanting, which would incentivize the, uh, the purchase of newspapers 
from large chains um, into local hands. And so ideally that would be like a local trust or a public benefit corporation, um, incentivizing local ownership um, and disincentivizing um, non-local ownership. I will say that that small business tax credit that I talked to was actually introduced in Wisconsin last year um, and had, I believe, 16 co-sponsors. Um, Representative Novak was the lead co-sponsor on that. Um, and so it's it's not just, uh, you know, the coastal states that are looking at this or are states all around the United States that are interested in supporting their local press through public policy. So how would you rebuild local news? 1-800-642-1234 to join our conversation. What do you see in your local newspaper or how about your local nonprofit news source that you'd like to give a shout out to and what we can do to support them? 1-800-642-1234 to join us or email ideas at WPR.org with our guest, Anna Brugman, Director of Public Policy for the Rebuild Local News Coalition. So Anna, if we're going to offer these payroll tax credits or offer for tax credits at all for these local information sources, you'd have to make a case for the value for the rest of us or the value the rest of us would see in a robust local journalism. What's its value to me? Oh, boy, what a... <laughs> I know. Again, where to start? Um, <laughs> um, so I, I guess I could start by talking about what happens when, when local news leaves. And we've studied this mostly by looking at when local newspapers leave for a very long time um, in our nation's history. Local newspapers have provided kind of like the foundation of local news sources. So much of what gets up to national broadcast or national newspapers starts as a local story. And so local newspapers have for a long time provided the bedrock of not only accountability reporting, but also kind of the um, that social capital, those ties to community, the community features that um, remind people why they <laughs> care about their community. People who read local news are more likely to volunteer. They're more likely to vote. Um, they are more likely to take interest in a civic cause. Um, and so you begin to appreciate what local news offers a community um, by studying what happens when something like a local newspaper leaves a community. And what we see is almost every metric by which you would measure um, civic health um, or the health of a community trends in the opposite direction as you would want um, when you lose local news in a community. And so that's voting rates. That's the number of folks running for an elected position. Incumbents are more likely to win elections when local news leaves. Polarization increases. Um, there's a professor, I believe he's at LSU, Josh Dar, has done a lot of research on how local news affects polarization. Um, but government borrowing rates go up. Bond ratings trend the wrong direction. Um, government waste goes up. I could go on and on and on and on. It's even more likely that communities without local news will have a um, uh, environmental disasters because there's fewer people watching corporate interests in those communities um and so there's fewer people who are able to point and say there is corporate malfeasance that could result in an, uh, an environmental disaster um there have been some that have posited that it's more likely that infectious disease will spread without strong local news um and so like i it's it's hard to it's almost every metric by which would <laughs> so <laughs> you basically would yeah what happens without local news you have no idea We're yeah and and I think that there's um there's 
I'm going to say his last name wrong. And if he's listening, I'm sorry, Tony, uh, he's a publisher in Iowa. He wrote a paper um, after he graduated from a program called New Start in West Virginia. And he wrote that it is, it's, it's really hard to, to, ex to know which direction local news works in, whether it's a cause or an effect, but it is wrapped up into the economic health of a community. And so it's the economy, it's the government, it's civic life, it's pollution, it's health. Um, it, 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 I, I think a good way to think about it is like, when is the last time you cared about something in your community? When is the last time you were upset about something or found yourself feeling really proud of your community? And where did you read it? Where did you hear about it? And I would be willing to bet a lot of money. <laughs> uh, but I'm a journalist, so I don't have that much to that shit. <laughs> so not a lot to wager on that. We're talking with Anna Brugman from Rebuild Local News Coalition about the state of local journalism and efforts to support it. What would you do? 1-800-642-1234. What would you like to see? 1-800-642-1234. Email us, ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue our conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Lee Rayburn, and we're picking up the conversation with Anna Brugman. She's the public policy director for the Rebuild Local News Coalition with us today to talk about the challenges facing local journalism outlets and some potential solutions. And you can join us at 1-800-642-1234. Would you pay for more local news if a tax credit was available for it? 800-642-1234. Email ideas at WPR.org. And Anna, uh, Tom in Milwaukee called in, couldn't stay on the line, but wants to know if there's any relationship between your organization and public broadcasting or just print media. Uh, who's all, what, are, what are some of the groups that are part of this coalition? Well, hi, Tom in Milwaukee. Uh, we work very closely with public media. Um, National Public Broadcasting isn't a member of the coalition, but we work very closely together. Um, and we make sure that any policy that we are advocating for is what we call platform neutral um, or medium agnostic, which means that as long as folks hire local reporters, as long as you're transparent about your ownership, um, and as long as you're not owned or majority funded um, by organizations likely to have political motives and you're you're probably uh, local journalism and you should probably be supported um, with any public policy. Um, and so that's public radio, that's print, that's nonprofits, um, that's commercial digital onlys. Um, we really are uh, focused on the local journalism and who is likely to do that local journalism more than just the medium at hand. And is there a name for the federal legislation for a payroll tax credit for uh, media outlets? So that was originally proposed in something called the Local Journalism Sustainability Act, which was introduced uh, in 2021 for the second time. Um, it is bipartisan in the House. Um, it has a pretty broad uh, spectrum of co-sponsors on that. Um, and so if you look at the Local Journalism Sustainability Act, there are three pillars, which one is the payroll tax credit, one is the advertising tax credit, and one is the subscription tax credit. Mm. Uh, and so the payroll tax credit was singled out in Build Back Better, but was originally introduced as that, that big bundle of policies. And Anna, if, I, if I'm a news devourer, not just a news consumer, but I just can't uh -huh. get enough, what more can I do to support the information, to get more information? What role of do course. I play in this? Um, and so 
if there is a high quality news outlet in, in your area, support it, whether that be your public radio station, your local newspaper, your local nonprofit. I subscribe to a combination of all of those. <laughs> um, uh, and then you can support organizations that are, are trying to help other local news outlets. And so that's folks like American Journalism Project um, or Report for America, um, which our founder, Stephen Waldman, also helped found. Um, American Journalism Project uh, is um, in venture philanthropy. It's a very innovative organization that's working to um, kind of shore up the business side of local news outlets. Um, Many of our members, in fact, <laughs> um, do take donations, and they would be uh, very excited to see more donors supporting their work of supporting local journalism. Um, Report for America is a really interesting, um, I, full disclosure, did work for them for a little bit, <laughs> um, organization that places local journalists in local newsrooms that otherwise wouldn't be able to afford them, kind of similar to like Teach for America or AmeriCorps or the Peace Corps, um, but for local journalists in the United States. And so you can look for these organizations if you're looking for a way to do even more than just subscribe to your local news outlets um, that you feel provide high quality journalism for your community. You could look at those organizations to support as well. Let's go to your calls and questions now at 1-800-642-1234, where Pat in Green Bay is standing by. Pat, good afternoon. You're on the air with Anna Brugman, Director of Public Policy for the Rebuild Local News Coalition. Good afternoon, and thank you for taking my phone call. Um, you know, I'm all, all for this, this public support. Or I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry, your person that you're talking to, I can't keep up with her. She's very, very quick. But anyway, all, all I want to all I want to say is, you know, it's all good, but we need to do away with where we have one news one news source that's slanted towards the Democrats, one that's slanted towards the Republicans. That shouldn't have anything to do with the news. The news should be the news, not what corporate America wants us to see. So how do we keep the partisan away from the information when it comes to journalism, Anna? Uh, that's a great question, and I am sorry I speak very quickly. <laughs> um, I'll try to slow it down a bit. Um, the So the qualifying language in a lot of the public policies um, that we're pushing it does not have anything to do with the content that is produced. And so in terms of how public policy could enhance a, a perceived partisanship, we are actively, uh, that is a pillar of our approach to pursuing public policy, um, is making sure that's not the case, is that no government official would be able to pick and choose which uh, newspaper or news outlet um, would benefit from a specific policy. And we do that by constructing qualifying language that is more about the characteristics of a newspaper or a, a news website or a public radio station. Do you hire journalists? Do they live in the area in which they cover? Um, are they funded by, are they not funded by politically motivated folks? Um, in terms of the journalism that is done, the public policy is actually, we intentionally distant from that um, because it would be a nightmare to us as journalists to pass policies that undermine the independence of the local press. That's our worst case scenario. Um, and so I, I think that it's important to, uh, to have conversations with your local newspaper and local journalists. Local journalists are people. I've been a little <laughs> local journalist before. <laughs> um, we're, we're humans. Uh, and we would love to have a discussion um, uh, with the folks that we cover about how we can improve our coverage. Um, 
And I think that, uh, yeah, I think that's, I, I think part of that is uh, what happens in the conversations we have with local journalists and our local newspapers. And, and our role in that is making sure that we have sustainable and thriving and vibrant local news outlets in all communities that can uh, cover, be, be a voice for the community. Um, so I think I think that's our role in it. And we've just got about a minute left here, Anna. But how would you respond to concerns people might have about the government being involved with regulating journalism or funding it? Yeah, I think that's a real fear. And I think um, we don't want to uh, disqualify that at all. And as I said, a major pillar of our of our policy pursuits is that they're content neutral, that we don't pass policies that put a government official in the position of picking which publications serve their interests. Um, and we don't want journalism that serves <laughs> government interests. Um, and so, as I said, the qualifying language, uh, the definitions, the qualifying language, the really, really boring, boring, wonky stuff is really, really important in these policies. And we, we think it's a huge responsibility to uh, pass good journalism policy because we need more good journalism. Yeah, the really, really boring stuff, which is what you do at the Rebuild Local. It's- News Coalition. But we do. (laughs) Hey, Anna, Anna, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Anna Brugman is the Director of Public Policy for the Rebuild Local News Coalition. She was with us today to discuss efforts to revitalize local journalism through its advocacy. A note of clarity here, Wisconsin Public Radio is not part of the Rebuild Local News Organization. Our conversation from Anna was from earlier this year, but we still want to know what you think, and you can still comment at any time. You can email us, ideas at WPR.org. Now, coming up tomorrow on Central Time, U.S. cancer centers are reporting a growing shortage of common cancer drugs, and it's forcing them to change the way they treat patients. Dr. Kerry Wasinski from the UW Health Carbone Cancer Center shares what's happening and why. Plus, also tomorrow, I don't have to tell you, it's Food Friday, and we'll be taking you out of the kitchen to cook in the wild, if you've got a cooler and a campfire, well, have we got the recipes for you. That's all coming up tomorrow on Central Time from 3 until 6. Join us then online or over the air. Next is news from NPR and WPR. And then we'll talk to two DNR wildlife experts about what to do and not to do if we come across a wild animal that looks like it may need our help. I'm Lee Rayburn in for Rob Ferrett today, and you're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. It's Central Time. I'm Lee Rayburn in for Rob Ferrett today, and you're with us on the Ideas Network. Coming up... We learn about an archaeological discovery that a human ancestor may have buried its dead, and we'll hear about it from one of the UW researchers uncovering the ancient remains. But first, a tourist at Yellowstone National Park made national news last month after attempting to help a baby bison out of the river. The bison was abandoned by its herd and ultimately had to be euthanized by park staff. The tourist was charged with a misdemeanor. And the story has served as a warning about the risks of interfering with wildlife, even when we have the best intentions. But now that it's summer and we're spending more time outdoors, it's likely that some of us will come across some wild animals who look like they may need help. 
Our guests today are here to tell us when to step in, when to get help, and when to leave it alone. Do you have a story about finding a wild animal in trouble? What did you do about it? What was the ultimate outcome? Do you have a story of good intentions gone wrong involving a wild animal? Join our conversation this afternoon at 1-800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can always post on our uh, Ideas Network Facebook page as well. Our guest, Mandy Camps, who is a wildlife health conservation specialist for the Wisconsin DNR. And Mandy, welcome to Central Time. Well, thank you for having me today. And also joining us, Taylor Siskin, who is an assistant captive wildlife and wildlife rehabilitation specialist for the DNR. Taylor, welcome to you. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. Taylor, can we start with just a little bit of what your work looks like on a day-to-day basis at the Department of Natural Resources? What, what do you, uh, what's your role? What do you do? Sure. Uh, yeah, I guess it depends day to day, time of the time of the year. But on any given day, I might be, you know, mainly helping to assist our wildlife rehabilitation program. So helping with licenses and exams and whatnot, and also helping with the Keep Wildlife Wild uh, program and its poster contest. I also take a variety of calls from the public about anything that they might be finding. So really a variety. And like I said, kind of depends on on the season. Sure. Uh, And as we're getting into the summer season, what does that mean for you, Taylor? Uh, Definitely lots of baby animal calls. So that (laughs) is what's happening right now. Uh, We just had, yeah, I just, one of our producers, Colleen, had a a roommate who just had a, uh, uh, rescued some ducklings from a a storm sewer yesterday. So we'll we'll get to that. But also, Mandy, I want to hear about your work and your role as a wildlife health conservation specialist for our DNR. Yes, uh, some of the main work that I do is I'm a primary contact for wildlife rehabilitation. Uh, Taylor and I work together very closely. Um, I'm a contact for the licensed wildlife rehabilitators in the state and also a contact for the public who may have some questions or even are interested in the license. I also do a lot of public outreach on anything related to Keep Wildlife Wild. I give a lot of information about explaining animal natural behaviors, when an animal may or may not need help, and what to best do to help the animal, and then also have some questions pertaining to more of the captive wildlife situations. Interesting. So, Mandy, what are the most common common kind of calls you get from people who are concerned about a wild animal this time of year? Well, this time of year, as Taylor said, to a lot of baby animal calls. Uh, As people are outside more, the weather is nicer. It's the time of year when baby animals are here. So those reasons kind of lead to the interactions between people and animals increasing a bit more. And a lot of the questions that we get are uh, folks that are outside enjoying the weather and come across an animal, especially a young one, and they're wondering if it is abandoned or if it needs help. And a lot of the natural behaviors of our wildlife species, the mothers or the parents will leave their young animals alone for extended periods of time during the day. That's really normal. That's the best thing that they can do to protect their their young. But um, we get a lot of questions because some of that information isn't known by everybody. And so everyone has questions wondering if those animals need help. Uh, those ducklings in the storm sewer that our producer's roommate came across yesterday. Mm-hmm. Taylor, uh, is that a time to step in or are those? I, yeah, I'd be curious to know because all of a sudden my human reaction would be save the ducklings, save the ducklings. But maybe that's doing more harm than good. Well, and 
a case like that, a duckling definitely won't be able to fly itself or climb itself out. So, and that would definitely be a case where you could re reach out to some of your, you know, local local officials or local uh, police department or fire department, I should say, um, and see if they can assist in that case. Because, you know, you always want to keep, you know, human safety in mind as well as a lot of the time those will be along roads or busy areas. Mm -hmm. So uh, most of the time you're going to want to make sure that, like I said, human human safety is is checked off the list and then, you know, see what see what you can do to to get them out of that situation. And hopefully mom will be around or in the area and much of the time she, she might be waiting for him. And sometimes that's how people might spot them. So if we see a baby animal who has been left alone, uh, I would imagine that our best bet, if it's not in something like a storm drain, would be to leave it be. Yeah, that's really the best advice is to if you come across an animal, you're really not sure if it needs help or not. The best thing to do, make some observations, take some notes or even some pictures about what you're seeing and then make some phone calls. It's to could be to your local uh, DNR wildlife contacts or some other staff that you know locally where you are. There's a lot of wildlife rehabilitators across the state that have uh, good information on their websites. You can call them as well. Uh, some other facilities like uh, maybe some humane societies or other nature centers or rescue groups in the area could help give you some information about if an animal does need help or what those normal behaviors are. But really when it comes down to it, the best thing you can do is leave the animal where it is and then make those calls and then try and figure out if that animal does need help. If it does, uh, we can certainly get that information too about how to help the animal appropriately. Yeah, reach out to the specialists, reach out to the experts. Mm -hmm. And in fact, yeah. uh, we have a link to the wildlife rehabilitation resources and directory from our DNR online now at WPR.org central time. So if you uh, find yourself faced with some babies who seem to be in need before you begin to reach out, reach out to, uh, to the babies themselves, perhaps reach out to the experts first. And again, uh, the wildlife rehabilitation resources and directory uh, webpage from the DNR can be found quickly from WPR.org central time. Our guests, Mandy Camps and Taylor Siskin from our DNR, we're taking a look at what to do when we come across uh, wild animals who may seem like they are in need. And we're taking your stories as well at 1-800-642-1234, where Carrie joins us from Turtle Lake. Carrie, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. I uh, sure appreciate what you ladies do for a living. Um, on Friday, I was putting my pontoon boat into the water and when I was unwrapping it I saw a robin's nest on one of the holes full of baby birds, oh. baby robins. So we kind of didn't know what to do with it. Obviously, you know, we had to move it otherwise they would drown. So what would have been the best those baby birds so they would have lived? Hmm. How can we uh, yeah, what would you have done with that nest and who would like to take that? Sure, I can I can uh, take this question. So that happens often, especially in the spring, if you're taking some boats or campers out of storage. Uh, earlier in the spring, you might come across like a squirrel nest or raccoons even, and sometimes songbird nests. So we do get this question often. And if you do find a nest like that, if there are some young nestlings in it, and if there is a spot close by, like a nearby tree or a shrub or something else that's not too 
far away, you can actually move that entire nest. You can take it off the, um, the boat where it is, put it into, um, well, if it's still intact, you can put it directly right on a tree branch. Or if you need to, you can make a kind of a makeshift nest bowl. If you have an old uh, Tupperware container, put some holes in the bottom for drainage, put the nest material and the nestlings in it, and then secure it the best you can to that tree or shrub nearby. And as long as it's still close by, the parents are still there, they still hear those nestlings, and they'll still be able to care for them. Is there truth to the idea that if you touch a baby animal, it might be rejected by its parents? Great question. Uh, no, that's really a myth. Huh. And of course, we want to try and limit the amount of interaction we have with animals. But if you do have to handle them just temporarily to move them to a safer place or whatever it may be, that is okay. Of course, we also always recommend wearing some gloves or putting a towel in between or a blanket or something like that. Always uh, good safety measures for both you and the animal. Taylor, my uh, parents uh, have, uh, for some reason, birds that always want to build nests above their front door. And my parents, being who they are, end up spending a lot of times in the spring and early summer going in and out through their garage. Is there something that can be done to, uh, before a nest gets done, perhaps uh, find a way to suggest a better place for these birds to find a good nest? Sure. I mean, yeah, I know sometimes they can they can find an interesting <laughs> place to build their nest. <laughs> um, of course, they can also be very quick at building their nests. So, you know, sometimes it can be hard if they build them even in a day, you might not get the chance to kind of encourage them to move off somewhere else. Um, you know, of course, if it more the more activity in the area, the less likely they're, they're going to be to try and build there. Of course, sometimes you might even find a bird nest somewhere where there is a lot of activity. Um, but, you know, whatever, you know, someone can do to kind of keep keep the area you know even just noise you know like I said increased activity um, most you know animals like that are going to want a spot that's really quiet and peaceful so um, you know right off the bat that's something you can do um, Mandy I don't know if you have any other good suggestions for me here well, I was just going to say that my mom was reluctant to uh, bang on pats and pans at her front door <laughs> who were concerned about what her neighbors might think <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, that might be a little, a little much, but <laughs> for birds, but um, no, it's some good advice too. I mean, generally animals don't like to have an areas with a lot of activity, but if it's in like uh, on top of a, a gutter or downspout or a doorway, if there's something you can do to block that area so they can't actually access it anymore, you can completely prevent them from even trying to build there in the first place. Um, and then, of course, if you have a yard that has really good habitat, if you have trees, shrubs, other more natural places for them to nest, hopefully you're encouraging them to move to those places instead. That's Mandy Camps also joining us, Tyler Sis Taylor Siskin from the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. And we're talking about what to do if we come across a wild animal that may need help. And we're taking your calls as well at 1-800-642-1234. Tell us about a time you came across wildlife in trouble. And have you found wild animals in places where they shouldn't be, like, you know, above your front door or perhaps even in your pet's mouth? 1-800-642-1234 for your questions and experiences you you can also post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Our conversation continues next on Central Time. 
You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Lee Rayburn, and we're picking up our conversation with Mandy Camps and Taylor Siskin, two wildlife experts from the Wisconsin DNR, and we're talking to them about what to do if you come across a wild animal that looks like it may need help. Where can you go to find the help that a wild animal may need to get it? And you can join our conversation. What questions do you have about wildlife rescue and rehabilitation? Is there a situation you commonly encounter that you don't know quite how to handle and have you been in a situation before where you successfully helped an animal out share your stories 1-800-642-1234 post up on the ideas network facebook page let's go to nancy and warren's next nancy good afternoon hello hi you're on the air oh cool i love listening to public radio this is so cool thanks um, for calling my, my dot um when my daughter lived in downtown Warrens, and I mean, like, if anybody's been there for Krantis, like, right across from the school, the house next door had a fawn right in the bushes. Like, and it was there, like, in the early afternoon. And we called the wildlife thing, and they told us just to leave it alone. And the next morning, it was gone. It was, like, really cool that, yeah, like, the mom came and rescued it. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, thank you for the story because that's kind of what I, I believe, Mandy and Taylor. That's kind of what you've been talking about is is for these babies. Uh, many times the parents are gone during the daytime and they're not an animal in need at all. They're just an animal left alone for the time being. Absolutely, and that behavior of the fawn that you were just describing—that is completely normal for a very young fawn, usually within the first two weeks of age. So fawns, when they're little like that, they are just not big enough. They're not strong enough to follow mom around as she's out and about during the day, finding food for herself too. And her presence alone, uh, the scent that she has, those are all things that will attract attention, could attract predators to her young. So the best thing that she does to uh, hide them is to leave them alone during most of the day. She'll come back a couple times a day to feed them, usually early morning and early evening, and they're by themselves. They're curled up like that, hiding the best that they can. And what she'll do is she'll move them from place to place as well. So it's pretty common if you see them uh, laying down in one spot one day, they're gonna be gone the next day. So that behavior again that you saw laying down like that, we get a lot of questions right now about fawns, but that is absolutely normal behavior. And the best thing you can do, you can observe from a distance, um, take some pictures from inside if that's safe, if you want to, but give them their space, give them their time and mom will get reconnected with her fawn. Even if they're right there in downtown Warrens and Nancy, thank you so much for the call. Um, I want to ask about what happens if we're responsible for an injured wild animal. And Taylor, for example, if if it gets hit by our car or if it's injured by one of our pets, what what responsibility do we have there? Sure. Well, you know, and like you said, sometimes, you know, a common situation is our pets. You know, we're all outside enjoying the warmer weather that we're having. And, you know, sometimes, you know, a common case we come across is a dog or a cat might find a rabbit nest in, in your yard or garden or somewhere. Um, so just as an example, a case like that, if your pet gets a hold of one, you know, you know, un- unfortunately being so little, oftentimes they might, you know, end up with some sort of injury. Um, so in that case, you know, you can always, you know, reach out 
to a local licensed wildlife rehabilitator or even um, someone with the DNR and we can, you know, help you out um, with trying to find somebody who's in your area. Um, that's a lot of, you know, what both I and Mandy do this time of year. Um, you know, we're here to assist and try and help find, find, find a place that can assist in those situations. Um, so certainly there are times where um, they might be in need of help with some sort of injury. Um, and there are also other times where maybe it's an injury they can just, you know, survive on their own. So sometimes, you know, if it's something that's a little less mild, um, like some sort of road rash or, you know, um, some sort of, of cut or injury that's going to heal just fine, sometimes they don't need an intervention. But always good to just check in and, and always ask, you know, first and get a second opinion as well. And again, the Wildlife Rehabilitation Resources and Directory from our DNR is available online at wpr.org slash central time. Uh, find the link to today's show and it'll take you right there. Before we get back to our calls at 1-800-642-1234, I want to ask about transporting these animals and what role or responsibility we'd have in getting them to a re- rehabilitation center or out of a place where it shouldn't be or could be in danger. Uh, how do we best move these animals who may be in need? And, and I don't know if Mandy or Taylor, whoever better, uh, is best to answer that. Well, sure, I can get us started this time, and if I miss anything, uh, Taylor can fill in the blanks for me. But uh, certainly, take some considerations into mind if you do have to uh, handle a wild animal, put it into a safe container, and transport it to a rehabilitator. Uh, usually, we recommend having like a pet carrier or um, a box or some kind of big enough size container just given the animal uh, with a towel on the bottom of it and then safely placing the animal inside or if you can kind of corral it inside if that's possible that's fine too of course you're wearing gloves you're protecting yourself that way and then inside a container it'll have a blanket it'll have, have something to grab onto to kind of feel a little bit more secure with and then keep that container in a quiet dark calm place away from people away from pets you want to be uh, is not it not adding any stress to that animal because it is a stressful situation for everybody and then um, contacting a rehabilitator and making some arrangements uh, usually you do have to make an appointment to bring an animal to them so just making some arrangements and then getting the animal to them as quickly as possible um, during transport too, just keep things in mind in the vehicle like nice uh, good temperatures it's kind of warm out there so have it a little cooler in the car no radios no talking really just trying to keep it as most of a stress-free environment i'd have i'd have a tendency to want to talk softly to it and coo and (laughs) but that would be probably more harm than good again right yeah, probably. They're not used to that, so they'll be stressed out. Uh, Mandy Camps, Taylor Siskin from RDNR, helping us with how to best help wild animals when we come across them in the uh, outdoors this summer. And you can join our conversation at 1-800-642-1234, where Herb joins us now, who's driving. Herb, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm traveling a lot this last couple of summers, and once in a while I'll come across a big snapping turtle. Mm. And I'm just trying to figure out if there's anything you need to be prepared about with a big snapping turtle to keep you safe and the turtle safe. And also my second question is also about, or about deer. Um, you, once in a while you come across a wounded deer from a car accident, and the animal obviously needs to be dispatched. What, what's a good toolkit to have in one's trunk? to uh, be prepared for just about any animal that you might come across on the road. 
Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, let's start with the snapping turtle and what the best way, because I, I've come across this too, when uh, how does a turtle get to the other side of the road? Sometimes it needs a little bit of a lift. Am I mistaken in that, Mandy or Taylor? Uh, no, you're right. Uh, sometimes if, again, safety first, we're talking about being on a road where there's vehicles and people, so always human safety first. But uh, if you do and you can, uh, if you are in a situation where you can move a turtle off the road, important note here, move it in the direction it's going. Uh, it's going there for a reason. So you don't want to turn it around because if you do, it'll just try to turn right back around and cross the road again. Uh, any smaller turtles, a little bit safer. You generally want to uh, pick them up from kind of the back side or edges of the shell, like like painted turtle, for example, uh, and then gently, um, slowly just walk it to the other side of the road and, and put it on the other side. With a snapping turtle, that's definitely more of a challenge. <laughs> they actually have pretty long necks. They can uh, reach around and try and um, get at the person or the item that, or thing that's picking it up. So if you can safely, um, sometimes you can um, hold on to the backside, like towards the tail. If you can kind of, if you happen to have like a shovel, sometimes people just have like a winter shovel in their car year round. You can, you can kind of put that underneath the turtle or, or slide um, kind of something flatter. If you feel, if it's not that big of a turtle, you might be okay sliding your hand underneath the backside, but again, the backside and not the sides of that snapping turtle. <laughs> uh, and I apologize because we are just out of time, but uh, there is so much more to talk about. And, and Taylor and Mandy, I want to thank you both for joining us this afternoon. Yeah, thanks again for having us and all the questions that came in. You bet. Mandy Camps is a wildlife conservation specialist for the DNR. Taylor Siskin is a wildlife rehabilitation specialist at our DNR. Coming up after the news, we hear from one of the UW-Madison scientists involved in the discovery that an ancient human ancestor may have buried its own dead and what that may mean for us humans. I'm Lee Rayburn, and you're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network.